there is a serious backlash. And uh, I may push it further to say that under conditions like that, art is always at the front line because these are always uh, the people and uh, the field that is, uh, that is attacked first. Contemporary artists and theorists so continue to explore ways of engaging or commoning with the past, artistic engagements with historical conditions, be they artistic, familial, civil rights, critical, race, feminist, or queer, can offer us generative methods with which to build intergenerational communities across past, present, and futures. But what is at stake in this restaging of community and how does history collide represents or open up possibilities in our presence? That's a question that I ask. With antagonism, the automatic response, how do the arts, which often bear the weight of responsibility in unfolding and imagining, imaging new worlds, reminds us that following the force of refusal comes organization, regrouping, and the building of coalitions. Opening the program, Israel Yerosale invites us to consider the ways in which artistry enables us to visualize, but also mobilize such transformative social political communities. His lecture will probe the question, how do we occupy these social frameworks as a we? And what is implied in acts of redrawing collectivation? Ultimately, Community can be remade, not only in a material sense, but virtually and speculatively, as we move between virtual and physical realities, our diverse set nets of community reach further, as well as tangle. As spaces online demonstrate most clearly, communities aren't always brokered through affinities or likeness nor do they prescribe a prerequisite of connection. Community can even be based on refusal. It can be noisy, dissonant, polyphonic, fugitive, opaque. These are the communities that we would like to discuss with you over the next three days. So I'll move over to introduce our esteemed and distinguished keynote speaker, Rael Sali, who gladly accepted to be, to be with us in forum and to open the conversation. The keynote speak, I mean, the keynote uh, address is always uh, the, the kind of uh, talk and presentation that really sets the, set the tone for the, for the next three days. And, uh, we are extremely happy that uh, Rael has uh, accepted to, uh, to take that uh, responsibility. Um, Rael is professor in art history at the Maryland Institute College of Art, visiting faculty in African-American studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, and honorary research associate in philosophy at the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. Saleh is also a visual, practicing visual artist 
who holds a Master's of Fine Art and a Doctorate in History of Culture. For forum, Saleh will discuss how, I mean, his uh, keynote is titled Looking After Freedom. And uh, he will discuss how looking after freedom is a way of making we the people. Looking after freedom means caring enough to invent more humanly workable visual material and conceptual resources. Art artworks provoke new forms for and of imagination. Here, Sally's points of, re of return is that artists and makers are always already doing this nurturing work and invite their viewers to join in. Creative works can mediate fundamental paradoxes that were built into contemporary politics after, during, and through struggles for liberation. The struggles are not post. Citizens find themselves struggling through present colonialism, present apartheid, and present attacks on civil rights. Looking after freedom is therefore a shorthand for dynamic creativity that goes beyond reflecting situations of injustice, inequality, oppression, violence, and the like, from merely documenting them or responding to them towards generative tools and methods of transformation. Please welcome Rael Sali. Thank you very much, Cleo. It'll just take me a second to switch over. Thank you. So I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, um, Koyo, Ko and um, Gabriella Beckhurst for their efforts. Um, I'm even more excited because I see friendly faces in the audience. It's great to see you. And I'm glad you don't dissolve in the rain. Um, thank you for making it. My being here today came about through an um, oddly fortuitous set of circumstances um, before last night. Um, when Koyo and I were dancing in the same place. Um, we last saw each other in Johannesburg, South Africa for a symposium about the potentials and possibilities of post-colonial education. Koyo was updating the audience about the innovative work of raw material in, um, in Dakar and her time slot was immediately before mine. And so I became um, really involved and immersed in her presentation. And in fact, in part because the presentation I proposed was about artwork that involved time. Um, and I got so immersed in what Koyo was doing that um, when she came to a stop, I wasn't ready. 
they expected me to um, just jump into my own presentation. Um, but as it turns out, by that time, the audience also needed a moment to fo refocus attention. So we worked together to catch up and move forward in our discussion about contemporary art, African art in relation to education. So the occasion of 154 is a fantastic space in which to continue this discussion. And so I'm thrilled to see all of you making the time to be here with us here at Forum. Um, let me tell you what I hope to just share. There are three things. One, I call this looking after freedom. Koyo mentioned it was a shorthand. The first idea is that art making is actually theory making. That's my first idea. So actually making art is a practice of theory. I call this thinking in process, or I think about it as thinking in process. The second idea is that looking is a way of shaping both thought and imagination. So visual phenomena shape thought and imagination. I think of them, I, I'm saying thought and imagination. I'm not sure that there's a clear distinction between the two. Three is that social and political struggle, which suggests unrealized freedom, might be provoked and addressed through artistic engagement. Now, key to all of this is looking, which is a process so complex that it actually has the capacity to make our world. That's my big claim here, right? That looking actually is a process of making the world. Um, let me say some things in background about this. In terms of contemporary Africana art, there has been amazing growth over the past two decades. The pioneering work to develop and nurture the discourse of contemporary African art belongs to artists, curators, and scholars of Africa. I think of names such as Okwi Enwiza, Salah Hassan, Chike Okeke Ogulu, Olu Igwibe, Simone Njami, Bisi Silva, Sylvester Obechi, Koyoku. These are the founding figures of the new discourse on contemporary art. In, on this side of the water, we think of folks like Laurie Sims, or Leslie King Hammond, or um, Thelma Golden even. These pioneers have been joined by many others over the years, in part because of an insistence of looking from Africa. Some names that come to mind include Kwe Amar, uh, Mona McKenna, Tembinkosi Ganiwe, Timela Mosaka, um, Ogachuku Smooth Nziwi, Unji Ju, Gabi Nkobo. There are many other names. But from this side of the Atlantic, there are also Americans of African heritage finding and founding platforms that challenge the very idea of a dominant art critical, historical, and theoretical narrative. What's most striking to me is the change happening throughout the uncountable layers of the art world. And so part of what I'd like to suggest is that we are making this change right now. So the idea that you showed up and didn't dissolve in the rain is part of making a change in the way we're actually looking at this idea of Africana art. Um, and so we're interested. We're interested in these ideas already. So to be sure, this century is an African century. Um, some of us 
think it's been the African millennium, but that's another story. And that idea of it being the African century or millennium means that there's an unprecedented impact from art making, from artists, in scholarship, in exhibitions, and in the international art markets. A prime example of this is the tenfold increase in prices for African artworks at auctions and at fairs. So if you're thinking of buying, this is a good time. Now let me say something about me. I'll introduce myself. My background is as someone who makes talks and writes about art. I'm standing in front of you now because um, longer ago than I want to admit, uh, I was in my studio making things and the critics that came in to respond to my work completely misread what I was attempting to do. Uh, at the time I was working on some abstract paintings, large scale abstract paintings, and the conversation right away started talking about um, how long my hair was. And so that made me ask kinds of the, about the kinds of questions we ask when we're looking. So I'm talking about right now where auctions and art fairs are exploding, where there's interest in Africana art globally, and I'm talking about looking from Africa. So these are different ways of looking, and in fact, it's not the first moment when Africa moved to center stage. We might think about um, the car in 1966, but we'll come back to that. Now that I've done this preface, this introduction, I'd like to ask you to look with me. Because in fact, looking is a process. Nicholas Meritsoff talks about looking as a moment of recognition and identification. As I look at you, you're looking at me, and you're recognizing someone that's not you. Or at least that's the idea. So I'm going to ask you, just turn to the person you're sitting next to and say one thing about yourself. So some identifying information. We'll do this for 60 seconds. And so, for instance, hello. I like your hair. Thank you. That, see, that thing, that thing, even if you know someone well, we need a moment in which to recognize the person we're sitting next to. Can we do that? 60 seconds. I'll mind the time. Ready? Go. Is it too far? Too close? Too far. Thanks. You have another five seconds.
So now that we've done, I'm not sure about this. Sorry. Here on the western rim of Africa, here in Dakar, in the spring of 1966, I greet you, my gifted artists. That's a historical precedent. 1966, Senegal's first post-independence presidents um, celebrated the creativity of post-colonial Africa. It happened again in 1977, and then it didn't reappear until 2011, where the third time the festival took place. Um, over the past 40 years, the aim remained the same, to allow artists of black origin, this is a quote, the artists of black origin to be known and appreciated in the atmosphere of tolerance, mutual esteem, and intellectual fulfillment. There are questions about the event itself and about the ideology behind the event that are worth asking. But in this context, I wonder how anyone can grasp the tangible significance of events like these, um, like 1966, 1977, or 2017 here in New York. I also wonder what are the stakes of looking in 2017? And what does it mean to bring us together in this moment? And then how do we look from Africa after independence? In other words, how do we go about looking after freedom? Just a moment to introduce oneself is one example. But my ideas that I'll share with you in a moment will explore a constellation of thought and vision that spans centuries. Um, I've been most concerned of late um, about looking, what's called looking from the South, or, or looking from Africa now, um, as a way of thinking about looking after freedom. Because in fact, looking after freedom involves struggle demands struggle. Anytime we think about freedom, the other side of that is unfreedom or some kind of duress or some kind of difficulty. And so what might be clues to looking in this way? Um, I'll start with my grandma. This is my grandmother. This photo was taken in the middle of 1970s. I think it's 1976. Um, born in Barneswell, South Carolina in 1921, she came from the same place as the Revolutionary Museum, museum musician James Brown. In this picture, she's here in Brooklyn. I think she's in Canarsie. And it looks like she's taken to the street on a Sunday, so she's probably on her way to church. My grandmother loves church. What strikes me is her natty Afro hairstyle. And it's clear that she's on the way to church, but she's also dressed to impress. Now, where I'm going with this is the notice of her afro and the afro look. 
In fact, um, we know that in the 1970s in America, as in places in Africa, I think specifically about South Africa, women activists in the South African Students' Organization, SASO, S-A-S-O, wore afros as a deliberate style choice. They used dress and style to exhibit political, practical, and fashion-conscious motives. In this way, they were challenging feminine propriety. They challenged traditional womanhood. Women like Mpele Mpele and Deborah Matsofa exhibited the Afro look, and they called that the sole style in the United States. This is my grandma now. What I actually want to go to, I'll come back to her in just a moment. Oops, what's happening? This soul style. Everything was European background. The upbringing, the teaching school. Oh, my father was a pastor, you know. Um, a pastor, and um, everything had to be English. And everything. We, were not, we were not even allowed to speak our country's language in schools, and they called the language our con they called our own languages vernacular. So English was the <laughs> a real language you had to speak in school. So everything was English. With what we were taught in schools, nobody was thinking of whether to be African or not. We just accepted that we were English, and anybody that went to England for studies was a master, you know. So anybody that everybody wants to go to England, come back home to be master, you know. So I never thought about it uh, being African as such, you know. So it didn't mean anything to me until much later in my life. It was in England I started to feel the the awareness of having to be an African because for the first time I came to England, I started to feel, oh, wow. So these uh, white people don't, don't like, like us too much. You know, this is my experience from having to rent rooms, you know. I, I had so much. You, at that time, you read the newspapers in England. Um, house for rent, no colors, no dogs, and all this. That annoyed me a lot. And I met many students, you know, so at my my student days in England, I started to be aware of having to be an African. But we had nothing to offer as Africans because we were all just taught English. Like one of the latest songs I'm singing now, I said, teacher, don't teach me nonsense. Right. Now, I was trying to make, let's see my people see, because in Africa, people respect teachers. You know, teachers because they teach English and they teach their pupils, you know. Respect teachers and rev pastors, you know, in Africa. So, okay, now I saw that I should not use teacher as my focus. So I said, I, I, I uh, titled the song, Teacher Don't Teach Me Nonsense. Now, I now wove the song into letting the people see that white men have taught us everything we know. But I made people see also that one important thing they taught us was politics. Because I wove in 
in the song to the elections in Nigeria, the because it was a farce. Hmm. Now I mentioned democracy. Now in English, an Englishman will say Demo democracy. But if the African man wants to say it in broken, he will say democracy. You see now. I never thought of the word. I said demo crazy. That's now I saw craziness. I said I could not see my let my people see that democracy really is not that word. That is really madness, you know. So I said. Now, now I started to sing. I said. I start to think of this word democracy. Democracy. Crazy demo. Demonstration of grace, crazy demonstration. Then I went a little bit serious because I know that people will laugh at that when they hear that. Then I went a little bit serious. I said, "Now, I said if it's not crazy, why that in Africa, as time goes forward, things is getting worse. Poor man, they cry. Rich man, they mess." Democracy, crazy demo, demonstration of grace. Then I ended up, you know, to fuck the minds of the colonialists. Up, I said, if a good teach, if say if good teacher teach something, if a good teacher teaches something, and a student make mistake, teacher must tell him that he's making mistake. So I play the interview with Felakuti because it's that kind of response, that kind of interruption, that kind of disruption, that kind of play, that kind of imagination, that's all part of seeing in a certain way for Kuti. And I thought of that in relation to my grandmother because my grandmother, in the way she smiles at me, the way she um, kind of looks at me, has always encouraged the kind of crazy imagination that an artist offers or somehow nurtures. So let's go from my grandmother and we'll move forward quickly. That was all just introduction. My grandmother just, he, she tends to look after freedom. I think it has something to do with the dreams she has from her childhood on the farm in stories. She talks about fetching water from the river nearby or collecting eggs from the chicken coop or caring for her younger sisters. And in her narrative, she moves through decades of memory, from the quietness of morning into the brightness of midday, her wizened eyes gradually blinking through the past. She edits the memories of violence, aches and pains inherited from parents born into slavery, skips over traumatic tales of growing up black in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and then pauses to describe silly games with younger sisters, laughs about adventurous older brothers who disappeared over the horizon, always heading north, and slows down just enough to navigate the darkness of mourning and funerals. My grandmother's visions tend bright, 
but scentless flowers of gardens that were not her own appear. She travels along the borders of territories to which she was once denied entry. She veers away from the tears that fell to the floors of the houses she scrubbed to sparkling. Quietly, my grandmother listens to the clatter of assemblies, the sights and sounds of protest movements, and gradually she steers her memories toward differently hued and more recent paths. Now, new, unfamiliar fantasies appear and disappear with once tender children, then grandchildren, then great-grandchildren who rush out into the big world and into the dangers of adulthood. And sometimes, my grandmother's grandchildren come to visit, dressed as career people and citizens to be sure, and they're always offered gifts. My grandmother's gifts are passed down to her mischievous grandchildren who seem to have inherited the ability to ignore and forget whatever they please. But the gleam that still dances in my grandmother's eye is magical. Looking after her family, my grandmother never lets us forget her struggle. Her look is a reminder to take care because her vision is about a fight, a struggle, an ability to create our worlds as we want to see them. So my grandmother's look reminds me to act, to dream, to make, in ways bold enough to change the world. She insists that there is an unassailable security worth fighting for. She's certain self-awareness is a gift. And she is absolute that the ability to feel free comes with dreams that are pictured in the highest definition. So my grandmother sees the real power of her insights, which is why for decades she has shared them with any of us who will listen. As black as she is, she has spent decades bringing to life a more expansive, fluid, dynamic way of black being. And she demonstrates that we do not merely inherit our world, but we have the capacity to make of it what we will. And so she repeats, quote, do what is right, be pure, and at the end of the way is freedom. But until then, be patient, end quote. So this is her way of looking after freedom. Now, I've briefly introduced my grandmother in order to introduce, to present what I want to talk about, which is the problem of struggle and the promise of freedom. And I think this way of looking is both realistic and imaginative at once. Looking after freedom is a title that refers not only to looking back to the post-colonial or post-apartheid moment, but to looking at what Gary Wilder calls the distinct types of time and peculiar political tenses required or enabled by apartheid and decolonization. Because political decolonization raised fundamental questions for formal colonial subjects. These questions included thinking about the frameworks for self-determination. What strategies, structures, tactics could be pursued in relation to a given set of historical conditions. These questions 
are tangled with temporal questions about the relationship between existing arrangements, historical legacies, and possible futures. We're looking here at a still from a performance by Kanyesile Mbongwa in Cape Town in 2014. And what's significant is the burden, the load that each performer bears. Cape Town's an interesting place. Um, and I'll come back to it in just a moment, but as a, as a, a paradisaic kind of place, it has visitors from all over the world. But as you know, when we go places, um, we come with our own set of ideas about the place. So we look at the place based on what we imagine it to be. As a specific strategy for making meaning, performance artworks may be seen to intervene in art and politics, especially in relation to articulations of blackness. There's a history to this, this blackness thing. Um, in South Africa, in particular, in, in 1976, Steve Bantubiko issued a call to action that depended on looking at oneself as an agent of change. Speaking in South Africa, Biko described the words, black is beautiful, as a slogan that serves personal and political purposes simultaneously. It seems Biko sees a pairing of black with beauty to describe a way of being in the world. This is going out of order. I'll go back here to tell you what Biko said. Here's the quote from Biko that I wanted to share with you. You are challenging when you say black is beautiful. I think that slogan has meant to serve and I think is serving a very important aspect of our attempt to get at humanity. You are challenging the very deep roots of the black man's belief about himself when you say, quote, black is beautiful, end quote. What, in fact, you are saying is, man, you are okay as you are. Begin to look upon yourself as a human being, end quote. To look upon oneself as a human being while also moving through life as a racialized person is complicated. It requires a particular sense of oneself in the world, a self that lives as human on one hand, which Biko implies cannot assume cannot be assumed as given, and as a self that actively opposes the forces of colonial geopolitics, racism, and structures of inequality on the other. Black consciousness is how Steve Biko and others describe this way of seeing. And in terms of ideology, blackness becomes visually knowable by selves who work against both social se separateness and the ideological foundations upon which such divisions are maintained. Talk about paradox. Now, this blackness stuff is, of course, part of our cultural imaginary. In Southern Africa, 
It emerged from anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles across the, across the continent. And the social and political actions were imagined, provoked, and encouraged by ideologies developed by the work of activists, writers, and artists. For Biko, there was a developing culture of defiance, self-assertion, and pride in response to common experiences of oppression, enabled by practices of looking. So looking at one's racialized body in terms of human being became a method for forging tri-continental social-political solidarity. It's building community. And so looking is the action that at once registers blackness, but it, it's also the force that shapes both being, if we think um, philosophically, metaphysics, and knowing, epistemologically. Looking is central to our experience of everyday life. I'm hoping that you're convinced by that by now. But I've also talked about different kinds of looking, different forms, modes, opportunities for. When I'm thinking about these sorts of artworks then, my approach includes an optic of empire, an optic of the world after colonialism, apartheid, and well, perhaps now democracy. Specifically, I'm focused on a view from the position of the imperial subject so that we can think about or emphasize real concrete ways the imperial formation was built from complex views. Art making, I'm saying, is one form of political and theoretical action. In fact, I don't have to say it, Kalakuti said it for me. One of my primary purposes then is to connect art making with practices of freedom, or more exactly, to describe how recent art theorizes liberation in order to create and conduct, that's a flood warning, create and conduct a politics for Africans that encounters white supremacy, that counters and encounters white supremacy right now, in our time, in our moment. We can look at recent South African art to elaborate the ways it identifies conditions critical to the politics that are fit to respond to operations of white supremacy. This way of thinking re relates to a description of contemporary Africana art by Okwi Enwizer and Cheke Keke Gulu. They say contemporary African art is, quote, a network of positions, affiliations, strategies, and philosophies that represent the multiplicity of cultural conditions, traditions, and archives available to and exploited consistently by the artists in order to shape their artistic positions. End quote. So artists are taking up all of these forms of looking as their media, as their medium. Now, another way of thinking about this relates to the description of African art as offering specific historical data in the sense that artistic works, conceptual strategies, and formal procedures can be coherently organized. Much of our visual experience, of which looking is part, takes place within formally structured visual fields. But there are everyday experiences of the visual, which include, for instance, 
noticing the cover of a book jacket, or watching a television program, or scrolling through pictures and texts on our mobile device. So each act, to see, to represent, to know, involves engagement with an object of perception. And most of our experience of the world is mediated by attitudes about or according to what we are doing. And those attitudes vary whether we're going to the cinema or to the art fair. So questioning looking uncovers several complicated issues that we can think about in relation to contemporary Africana art. One, prioritizing looking means to move across various realms of the everyday experience of visual images. Of course, watching visual activity means seeing the trouble on the horizon of the second issue, which is that visual images are not stable. Crazy. Visual images change in relationship to exterior reality, which, bears, which brings us quickly, maybe even too quickly, to the next conundrum. Critical attention to visual fields reveals the absence of lines clear enough to mark boundaries. We don't have lines clear enough to delineate exterior from interior reality. That is reality from fantasy. So even if I might want to see my grandmother's dreams as crazy, how do I convince her of that? The third recognition seems to be the most complicated of the three, but then again, it's not so easy for me to draw a clear distinction between these things. What does come into view are the ways in which blackness troubles vision in Western discourse. By arguing that blackness and black life are always already troubling to the dominant visual field, looking after freedom as a way of thinking and investigating the already productive possibility of specific cultural works and practices. Thinking through looking enables a glimpse of some powerful demands, powerful demands of and for cultural production. Artists have a certain responsibility, I think. So it's a way of telling the story about how contemporary artists continue, continue to contribute to and reshape new relationships, conditions, and frameworks for looking. I'm going to pause here to ask if there are clarifying questions right now. It's somewhat unusual, but I want to make sure that this stuff about looking is at least clear enough to move forward. Because what I'm going to say next is that art is a way of looking at our world that is not just a reflection of our reality, but it actually makes our reality. So as we engage with artworks, it shifts the way we actually view our world from that point forward. And I think there's a tremendous power in that. It's not so easy to put one's finger on what that power is and how it works, but I'm suggesting that events like an art fair focused on contemporary Africana art is a moment to um, notice that that power is an operative. Other questions yet? Not yet. Everyone believes me? I'm, I have <laughs> that's wonderful. I think that's great. So let me go into it a little bit further. 
Let me say something about Africana performance and difference. We can think through Mbongwa's um, performance here uh, for a moment. Looking black, that is being black, is not about technique, and it's not about skin color, I should say that too. It's not about technique. It's not a technique, though a fundamental element of being black responds to a certain precarity in everyday life. In fact, what I'm suggesting is that, I'm not suggesting and I'm stating this, that history tells us that the legacies of colonialism, slavery, and apartheid are still alive in such a way that it threatens our life right now, this moment. So the fundamental elements that produce a black looking, or looking black, impact a black performativity in the way of asserting internal difference, complexity, and syntax. And so what makes one element that makes Africana performance a threat to authority, and what makes it seem possible, if not necessary, for a performance to make us think about abuse or um, a way another performance thinks about citizens who are compelled to literalize, to make real the weight of structural inequality by dragging bricks or by wearing some kind of burden on their backs. These movements, these interventions, refute the simplistic claims of nationalism based in conventions of differ difference. In fact, those things are crazy too because they've never been serious enough to refute in the first place. But those claims were made without evidence. They were made without way of reasonable um, motivation. But they were wholly rationalized. And in fact, that's why I want to think about art making as a form of theory, as a form of thinking. Because in fact, rational thought might come into question crazy. So if the internal difference of blackness is a violent and cruel rerouting of the conventions of difference, we have performances that offer willful opposition to a framing of what is sane and what is crazy. So I'm suggesting critical works of contemporary African art do what they do to display and demonstrate the notion that there is nothing wrong with us. Not meaning nothing beyond a certain ungovernability. Now manifesting this notion in partially spontaneous performances, some artists move towards danger and violence, and that suggests there's a willingness to break the law, and it requires the ability to cause trouble, to provoke scandal, to, in fact, question authority. Let me show you a clip from this performance. If that stops doing it. Here we are. Speak, 
just a short clip. The lead artist here, can you see the Mbongwa, is a curator and performance artist who is trained um, both in Stellenbosch and in Cape Town. Her work is often um, politically charged, and she's been an activist involved in anti-racist and feminist movements, in particular radical efforts of uh, black women Africana artists to establish and run their own exhibition projects and spaces. So she was already oriented towards rebuking the racism permeating Cape Town's contemporary art scene. Um, and that's been a focus of much of her work. Collaborating with two other artists, Koleka Petuma and Siyo Bela Sikawuti, Mbongwa portrays several versions of Generation Y South Africans. The duration of the performance features movements at various paces that are punctuated by shouts and whispers. And there's a visual coherence created through costume and arrangement. Each of the characters are draped or dressed in this gray striped blanket, a textile um, object that's now iconic for its inclusion in rituals and traditions in South Africa since the colonial era. The characters relate to each other in both Osa and Zulu languages, developing relationships, unions, and separating antagonisms. Also present in Mbongwa's live tableau are agonizing abstract avatars of herself, different names, but each character wraps themselves in the gray blanket, and while one bends over double from the weight of whatever is on her back, another pushes against the brick wall that frames a boundary for the performance activity. The experiences Mbongo describes in these performances and the documenting videos emerge from a desire to explore art making, blackness, womanhood, and the body in ways that oppose idealistic, romantic, or exotic views of blackness. The artworks also communicate beyond the boundaries of autobiographical or familial encounters. Now, in the wake of apartheid, limitations of social, political, and cultural worlds prompt different reactions from different constituencies of the same generation. But what we note here are exuberant displays and exhibitions of black bodies that are informed by the histories of slavery, colonialism, and ways in which historical phenomena continue to impact contemporary life in South Africa and beyond. So one way of thinking about this is that the histories are making and are being made at once, which is a strange way of thinking about time. But we may note that the young black characters appear in particularly provocative modes and then willfully reach backwards to this history, to encounter it, to respond to it, to think through it, to look through it, for memories of colonialism, for the future, in fact, and, and a future that has a broader range of possibilities for actors yet to come. This, strangely enough, echoes a sentiment that was made in 1963. 
by James Baldwin. It seems to me that the artist struggle for his integrity is a kind of metaphor, must be considered as a metaphor for the struggle which is universal and daily of all human beings on the face of this terrifying globe to get to become human beings. It is not your fault, it is not my fault that I write. I would never become before you in the position of a complainant for doing something that I must do. What we might get at this evening if we are lucky, if the mic doesn't fail, my voice holds out, if you ask me questions, is what the importance of this effort is. It would seem to me that, however arrogant this may sound, I want to suggest two propositions. The first one is that the poets, by which I mean all artists, are finally the only people who know the truth about us. Soldiers don't, statesmen don't, priests don't, union leaders don't. Only the poets. That's my first proposition. The second proposition is what I really want to get at tonight. And it sounds mystical, I think, in a country like ours and at a time like this. But something awful is happening to a civilization when it ceases to produce poets, and what is even more crucial, when it ceases anywhere whatever to believe in the report that only poets can make. People, millions of people, whom you will never see, who don't know you, never will know you, people who may try to kill you in the morning, live in a darkness which if you have that funny, terrible thing which every artist can recognize and no artist can define, you are responsible to those people to lighten that darkness and it does not matter what happens to you. Baldwin, in 1963, is touching on something that I see in Mbongo's work and the work of others. In fact, touching on something that um, I believe that arts practitioners, whether they be makers, curators, critics, historians, uh, must grapple with, which is the kind of work that art can and does do on us and on our way of understanding our society. The historical genealogy, the kind of historical sketch that I've been making this afternoon, just offers examples of how looking as a broader concept is directly tied to more 
abstract or amorphous idea such as freedom, fiction, ritual, spirit, and the ways in which our attention to those ideas depend on certain understandings of those concepts. And if we offer ourselves a slightly different genealogy, we begin to see how community, like the concepts of participation, relationality, or do-it-yourself aesthetics, have become, has become a key term in global artistic discourse. For cultural practitioners of various stripes, collective practice has offered incre an increasingly visible framework for defying art history's usual emphases. Uh, Huey Copeland and Naomi Beckwith talk about the singular autonomous author and the way in which community, collective action, reframes the relationship between arts, objects, makers, and audiences. So in the moment where I asked you, just take a minute and say hello to the person next to you. We had an opportunity to rethink our relation to the people in our space by looking at each other somewhat differently. We have an opportunity to reframe that relationship between art objects, makers, and audiences. So like the earlier political and artistic collectives that inspired them from the Surrealists to the Black Panthers, contemporary collaborative formations, such as art fairs, often aim to resist the commodification of art. Sometimes they advance a liberatory project. Other times it, they offer new models of art making, community and citizenship. Individual artworks do that. Conversations happen around what we see. And in fact, what I, I will end with is again how I started, that ways of looking after freedom offer possibly productive ways of redefining our relationship to historical legacy, including the issues that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. What I'm calling looking after freedom is a shorthand for coming to terms with the kinds of struggles that we all deal with on a daily basis. And in fact, thinking through a rethinking, the complex set of relations that, as trenched as they became, continue to restructure the abstract logics of colonial modernity and the still factually uneven lives of Africana beings. So as an artist, I hope that when we attend to the aesthetic accompaniments to the grammars of suffering, the ways in which, um, as Fred Wilderson says, the ways in which the grammars of suffering shape our lives, we can think with my grandma for another way of dreaming and making the world that might seem impossible but as one of my favorite quotes from Nelson Mandela says, it always seems impossible until it's done. So thank you. That's the end of my comments.
I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much, Rael. I had prepared my little five minutes, 10 minutes notes to the, to the speaker, usual thing that we get, uh, because uh, I was actually hoping that Rael will speak even longer and uh, I could listen more and that I would have to stop him, but I didn't have to do that. Thank you so much for this insightful, poetic and uh, far-reaching uh, presentation that you made. I really enjoyed how you could weave a personal narrative into uh, a political reading and a political interpretation of uh, uh, the current situation. There is one thing that I, I, uh, I kept, and the, which is, I think, would be the point for me to engage and open to the public a conversation is you said that uh, something like blackness is troubling and that uh, artistic practice or the political, um, I'm just trying to interpret you, uh, the political ramifications of artistic practice from a black perspective are troubling. And I would like you, if you could, you know, maybe expand a little bit more on that. And how do you see those, this troubling, if, uh, I think you say that in English, played out in the current situation or in our current times, particularly, of course, here in the US, but generally, as you know, uh, the, the political consciousness of, uh, of art and artists and how do, you, uh, how do you translate it to current times? I mean, you referred to uh, James Baldwin and, uh, and Fela Kuti radical figures in our uh, collective uh, imaginary in terms of uh, uh, political engagement from an artistic and intellectual pr perspective. How do you see it happening now? Thanks, Koyo. Uh, so, Troubling Vision is, the, is actually the title of a, um, a wonderful book by Nicole Fleetwood who um, talks about uh, performance and blackness as already an interruption to a visual field. Um, now, she goes into detail and length about how, in fact, blackness was never part of the discourse of Western art history. 
Um, in fact, it was part of the dis discourse in the sense that it was an absence. Blackness figures itself as an absence, right? Or is imagined or illustrated as absence. So if we think from that direction, if we think, well, uh, the conventions, the conventional historical narratives that we have um, are overwhelmingly uh, structured in such a way that whiteness is right. White is right if you're black, step back. Um, whiteness uh, is attached to light and divinity, um, which means that operating or living in the dark, which is one of the things that uh, Kuti said, I think, living in darkness is the condition of many of us. What does that mean, right? Um, there's a discourse on Afro-pessimism. Sidia Hartman, Fred Wilderson, they, Fred Wilderson, Orlando Patterson, they talk about how because of the condition of slavery, colonialism, and apartheid, um, those of us who are dark, though we have uh, an infinite diversity, we're seen together, we're looked at as either um, problematic or as um, disruptive or somehow not fully part of human being. So that's the first thing, right? That if um, people who are not white or people who are people of color, if we want to put it that way, if people of color are already always already seen as somehow other, aberrant, outside, then what does it mean when people of color start making things? Those things are necessarily always outside, aberrant, somehow different. But that leads to more complex issues, right? Because we're walking around breathing as anyone else. So I'm referring to a, a kind of um, a long history of civilization, actually. Uh, um, I would be interested that maybe we can get into um, what I call a kind of... Uh, because you were talking about looking from Africa or the looking from African-American perspective or looking from black perspective. Um, I believe that there is a space where African or African black practitioners in general um, can work from a space where we can think and act and make that is not against the other gaze. I don't know if I'm making sense. That is, when I say against, not as an opposition, but as a reflection of the other gaze. So, uh, and I come from a, tradition, if you want, or generation, or I was heavily influenced by a generation of radical African uh, 
uh, artists and thinkers who never believed in any sort of representation in reflection, nor any sort of uh, justification of their existence. And I'm really interested in where this space has sort of gone, because that space existed very particularly in the 1970s, uh, very strongly. And it seems like that space has disappeared again, and we are back into, you know, existing in reflection, so to speak, which I think quite problematic. I mean, it's open to discussion. So, uh, what do you think? I, I can appreciate that, and um, in fact, I, I think I understand why you would believe that, right? The idea of um, not being concerned in a certain way. That's what I'm hearing you say, not being concerned about this reflective position. Um, and I like that even. Um, part of the way I'm thinking about it is less in terms of space and more in terms of time, right? Um, in part because of the history of space. And when I say the history of space, I'm thinking in terms of, well, um, well, there's, there's a kind of uh, tradition for space and making space, right? Making space, making place. There's a difference between space and place, right? I mean, I'm where I am. I occupy a certain space, but in fact, there's a way of thinking about it that I'm here now, right? I'm present, and I don't have to so much worry about the space I occupy, I just know that I'm here. This gets, um, so I'm thinking about the way in which we engage memory. As a, we use our memories to, to build histories, to build narratives. That's part of why I chose Baldwin, right? Because as a poet, he spent a lot of time building narrative based not only on his personal memory, but on the, the memory of the world around him. It's also why I think with my grandmother, or look with my grandmother, because I remember her telling me stories, but at the same time, she wouldn't let me walk out the door without being aware of the world around me. So there's a kind of negotiation, I think, that has to happen. Because if we, well, I, I mean, I for one would love to live in a, in a, a space in which I don't have to worry about the world around me. But if I ever walk down the street with a hoodie on and it's the wrong place at the wrong time, I might find out, well, my imagination isn't exactly reality. So mindful of those contingencies, I think um, creative people are, are able to respond. Um, without so much worrying about the space we occupy, because we're here, we're everywhere, right? You can't go any place in the world where there aren't people of color, if we want to put it that way. But we also can't go any place in the world in which white supremacy doesn't actually impact that space. So we're in a moment, um, and in fact, this year is very different from last year, right? We're in a moment where our world feels different. It feels different to occupy the world, to be breathing in this world. Um, 
And it feels especially different for people of color. Let me address a notion that uh, I think is, uh, is important to still talk about, which is the notion of progress, which I really think is, is a conflictuous and even contentious notion. But if we look at it from a political, uh, through a political lens or even an artistic lens, you were talking about the, the presence, absent, the absent present presence of uh, uh, African and African-American practices in the general genealogy of uh, art history. Um, so the, the, the notion of progress uh, I guess my question to you is, is that if we look at the timeline of the creative output of the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, generally through a realm of African and African production from music to literature to art, film, etc., um, there seems to me somehow that there is a level of radicality that was expressed then against uh, uh, political and racial situation of the time that are sort of back today, which you rightly put in the context of present colonialism, present apartheid, and so on. So how does the idea of progress, <laughs> you know, uh, can, how can we fit the idea of progress in a situation? Because it seems like we are not moving forward, so to speak, whereas things are so-called developing? I, I appreciate that question. Um, can I give you a creative answer? Please. <laughs> um, progress relies on a notion of time proceeding on a in a line. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a history of progress as well, right? The, and it ex seems to accelerate with the advent of modernity in the Western world and then in its expansion around the world, if we want to think about it that way, or that term modernity as marking certain um, changes or transitions in human behavior um, all over the world, sometimes simultaneously. Um, but we have, we're, we're in the process of narrating those progressive, I'll use that term, those progressive changes from one thing to another. If I stay with thinking time, right, or thinking through time, um, then I have to think about, well, what are we measuring when we say progress? Do we mean that more people get to make things? Do we mean that um, we're able to communicate with each other instantaneously? What, do we, what exactly do we mean? Because in fact, if you walk on the street today and you ask someone, is, um, is New York better now than it was uh, in November 2016? 
then you'd have some folks who are very happy with the progress that's been made, whereas others of, other of us are dismayed. So I, um, so it's not, I'm not giving you a straightforward answer because if we're, th even in terms of just artistic production, if we wanna think about progress, we can think about it in terms of technological advance or we can think about it in terms of, well, how does artwork bring people together now? Um, I think it's wonderful that uh, artists of African descent are making more money from their artwork. But at the same time, as folks are able to earn a living and are able to be seen all over the world, we have questions about, well, what kinds of works are being received and how and who's, who's enabling that kind of circulation, right? That kind of commodification of what? So these questions about progress, I, I, I love them. I think they're important, but I'm not sure that they're very straightforward. And I'm not sure, in fact, um, that the art that, that can be political, that is political now, is, is political on the same level. So we talked about formal politics, but in terms of informal politics, that's happening from day to day. And I think you and I are generating a kind of informal politic, right? I, I'm sitting up here with a blazer on, so I look official, right? But this is a, we're, we're conversing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a making of what we want progress to be. I would like to invite the uh, audience. We can take two or three comments or questions <coughs> before we break to prepare for the next session. So don't be shy. Hi, Jeanette. Can you wait for the mic, please? Because we are recording. Um, just, I, th I think that the issue of looking and like really seeing somebody. I, I, I think what's happening, you know, with South Africa. I mean, I think Cape Town is a is a problematic space in some in many ways, as we as we know geographically and the way the city is laid out. But I just feel like. What's happening now with this whole racial issue is I, I see you. I don't look at you as a black person. I see you as rail. D does that make sense? No. Huh? <laughs> Why? I don't see him first as black. I see someone who I've seen around Cape Town, had breakfast with a, a table next to, listened to a lecture, been part of a, a class. You know, do you understand what I'm saying? Hello? Is this working? Yeah. Jeanette, I appreciate that, and um, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here, actually. I'm glad to see um, you, and glad to I'm be glad here. I'm glad to see you. So, I appreciate your question as someone, you know, we've known each other for some years now, right? In the space of South Africa. And in that period of time, I've learned that you c one can get to know someone and see them based on a wide range of points of entry, right? Um, so while you and I are acquaintances for a long time, I can also give you stories about being, I'll give you a story. Can I offer a story? So I was in the Woolies. The Woolworths is a, um, a grocery chain in, across South Africa. And recently, it was last year, in um, September, I was in the Woolies. And I'm standing in, in the queue, 
And, you know, it's very busy. So we're standing in the queue and I'm, I'm just trying to get out of there with my, um, what did I have? I had a wrap or something like that. Trying to get out of there with my bread. And I felt this sharp pain on my ankle. And, you know, you feel, something happens, you feel pain, you react to it immediately. And so I turned around, shocked, and I noticed this lady with a trolley had pushed her trolley into my ankle. And she had done it intentionally. Because when I looked at her, I, I was shocked, and she just said, that was my space in the queue. Uh, and racism, Hang on, hang on. Now, I s took a deep breath, and I said, all right, well, I'm, I wasn't aware. You must have had a challenging day. And I just looked at her. And right then, as I said, you must have had a challenging day. She said, oh, it's been terrible today. I had to do this, and I had to do that. And then these people, and I got a whole story. And a few minutes later, no more than two minutes later, she was inviting me to her home for tea. Because I took a deep breath, calmed myself, and overcame the minor physical pain so that she could feel okay engaging me in public beyond what she saw. Now, I love this idea that we are able to exchange and converse and, and really get to know each other beyond the imaginary of race. But racism is a very different thing. And in fact, racism, which is the action based on racialized thinking, as opposed to this imaginary of race, the actions based on racialized thinking, um, is in operation and it has been since colonialism started, right? Um, and I, this is my main claim, right? That these legacies are still with us and they happen on an unconscious level. They don't happen consciously. They're deeply embedded. But not everybody is racist and that's not the lens. I mean, you're talking about looking. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've often thought like in South Africa, for example, it would be a great place to actually completely, like to make racism as illegal as murder or rape or whatever, and that you actually instantaneously get locked up. If you, if you do something like someone did to you, in, and they got locked up and they got put in the jail, it's if, a country... If that, was the, if that was the it case... It should be the case. If that was the case, I'd be in jail now. Me. Why? I would be in jail. Because I make decisions based on race. But you wouldn't feel defensive and make ra um, racist decisions that were... if you weren't always on the, on the victim side of it. If, if there was something saying, the law says, and actually the, it is illegal to be, racism is illegal in South Africa, but it's not implemented. See, this is, this is wonderful as well. And I, it, it goes directly to some of the things I was thinking through with you, right? Um, in fact, what I, didn't out, what I didn't unpack is that in looking, in, uh, my reference for this is Nicholas Mirzov's um, The Right to Look, right? M Nicholas Mirzov makes this argument that there is, in the visual field, something called visuality. And visuality is the visualization of history. In the visualization of history, there is built into it a kind of force of authority. So he starts off his book talking about 
when you're passing a crime scene and the police say, move along, there's nothing to see here. The police have the force of authority to move us along. Although there is something to see, we know it, they know it, but they're in a position in which they can say, keep moving. So this issue of authority comes up. The issue about who has the authority to make the law and on what terms. Not only about the law itself, but how is the law acted upon? Because, in fact, we disregard laws all the time. So we might love this idea of a non-racial society. We might love the idea of race not being a thing, and it's not. But racism is still hanging around. But how and do you stop it? That's the well, that's... A, <laughs> I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, <laughs> if, I, if I did, if I did, then uh, I would do it right away. Um, okay, uh, thank you, thank you, Rael. Um, thanks for your talk. Um, and yeah, I was really struck by uh, the ways in which you talked about your grandmother um, and, and what she's, she's uh, teaching us. Uh, and actually, my question is really about, about some of the things that she said, particularly in relation to Koyo's earlier question. Um, and so it's, it's really about this idea of freedom um, and how, I mean, just thinking about this time, um, about being in, you know, in the world now as, as, um, as people of color, um, what really is, I mean, what does it really mean to, you know, to look at freedom? Um, perhaps not even, you know, moving away from the representational part, but to look at, the, at freedom as, as, as a possibility for today. Um, and not as a, a thing for the future. So when your grandmother says, you know, <laughs> like when, or when you talk of your grandmother and, and the way in which she looks at you, she's saying something. So, and I'm, I couldn't really tell from, from your description like what it is that she's saying, except, you know, her beautiful <laughs> grandchild. But I mean, what is that freedom? And how, and, and how really can, you know, as, as, as a person right now struggling with everything else that's going on in the world, how do I, you know, what is that, what is that imagination really, that, that freedom and what does, what, what does that freedom mean? Yeah. Thank you for that, um, that detailed question. There's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is, I don't know. But the reason I don't know is because I'm not sure it's a knowing kind of thing. My grandmother is a um, religious person. And so for her, there's a reality in which freedom is, it's a utopic kind of vision she has, in fact. And that vision operates in her present, you know, for example, in when she looks at her grandchildren. That reality is there for her. It's not in the material world that she sees, but it's so real for her that it's present. I'm not sure how to describe that. If I call it imagination, it somehow discounts it. If I call it um, 
envisioning that suggests that it's happening some other time. So that's why I don't know, right? I don't have the language for it. But in fact, and this goes back to actually something that Koyo asked me earlier about this thing about time, right? If we accept that time moves from left to right or from wherever we are into forward, or even if we accept that we're in the world standing right side up, then we have to deal with the reality that if I'm in New York now, then folks in South Africa are somehow ahead of me in time. And in fact, they're on upside down, right? So here's where this thing of space and time comes into it. And I don't have a full language for that. I'm developing it. I don't know if I'll ever get that. But the second part of it to this thing of, well, what is this thing of looking at freedom? I think that was the one part of it. The other part of it is that you're here you know, talking with me. And I think that creates some kind of opening, whether it's a spatial opening or a temporal opening, for these kinds of things to be engaged with, right? And, or being with or being through. This is why I asked everyone to just look at someone next to you and say hello. That doesn't always happen. We're in New York. Walk on the street, you don't talk to people. It could be dangerous. And yet, there are so many friendly people in New York. Everyone I actually speak to in New York is friendly. So where do I get this idea that's so dangerous? It's those kind of paradox that um, I'm interested in and that I'm finding ways of articulating. I'm working on it. But now everyone's working with me, so I think that's great. I actually have, um, thank you for that, because my question uh, is informed by points you made that I never thought of. So you talked about art making as the process of looking and thinking, not just creation. And so, um, so I kind of have two questions. So um, if that's the case and we're looking and thinking in the aims of reaching a sort of liberation, once we look and think, what's the action or what's the next step towards this liberation? That's one question. And then the second question is, is kind of for both of you because there was commentary about um, looking at ourselves but through their lens. And so I want to apply that to then having African art fairs and platforms that are from their lens, such as an art fair. How do we then participate in such mechanisms if we say the goal is to not judge ourselves or look at ourselves through a European lens or gaze or perce perception? Well, I, I'm not sure if I understood the last section of your uh, question. Uh, so I will rephrase it in order to make sure that I understood it right. Are you asking how platforms like 154 or other 
platforms and events participate or perpetuate uh, the gaze from uh, from through other lenses. Is that what you're saying? How how do you get there? How do you get that impression? I don't I don't completely have that compression, and I and I feel like it's a a melding together, right? So when you bring in figureheads such as yourself who have built this um, African-centric body of work and continue um, throughout the diaspora doing things, th then it isn't 100% um, us looking through our gaze. Yet, when I think about art fairs, and this may be my limited uh, perspective, I don't necessarily think that this is a space um, intentionally for us until it's themed for us. And I could be wrong, but um, as a person who works as an administrator, I don't always feel comfortable in, in a fair type of space. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I, um, let me take it from this side. Then I think that the, the artistic practice and has has a, a a very large biotope of of uh, you know uh, actors and uh, formats of uh, of uh, of making and of uh, producing of sharing of uh, dissem disseminating of uh, and fairs are an integral part of that biotope. So I don't think that the fair as a format, like as a body of, uh, as or as a conduit of, uh, you know, channeling uh, creative practice has a kind of uh, limitation when you mention that it's not so much for us. I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, we use various formats in our practices, be it publications, exhibitions, conversations, and so on. So, and, uh, and I truly think that 154 came to, um, was established exactly to get away from that, you know, looking at ourselves through that lens in order to create a space that is really ours and that is really open to that uh, history and and uh, and uh, uh, community of African and African American or African diasporic uh, uh, production. So uh, we are not asking for a seat at a table. We have our own table. That's so. This is what uh, we are trying to do here. Thank you. Good. I think we can close by that. And uh, we'll have a short break. And uh, I highly recommend you to stay. 
and for the next session uh, in 10 minutes. We've, uh, first of all, of course, thank you very much, Raël. It was, it's the second time that I, I hear you speak and it's always so inspiring. And uh, I look forward to uh, introducing uh, our, our next speakers in 10 minutes. It will be how you insufflate blackness through sound. So I really recommend you to stay. We'll have like 10, 15 minutes uh, break to set up. Thank you. <laughs>